Welcome to episode two of three this weekend. Uh, this is a baseball edition. Uh, it's, we're talking about the 1994 Montreal Expos, the team that could have been. But before we get into that, uh, let's. Uh, I want to remind everyone that pitchers and catchers uh, that are participating in the March World Baseball Classic Tournament report to camp February 13th. All the rest not taking part in it report February 15th through the 17th. Position players that are participating in the WBC report on February 16th, while all others report February 20th through the or 21st. So, baseball season's right around the corner. We are, as, as of today, looks like we're nine days away from the first batch and... We're about, what, I would say, because if their team gets together the 21st, usually about, you know, you know, about 23 days we're going to have live action, you know. So, now, we got a little did you know this week, or for this episode, and it comes from the 1994 season. Well, actually, after the 94 season. And it's probably one of the most absurd, absurd trades in baseball history. Dave Winfield, playing for his hometown Minnesota Twins, was traded during the season to the Cleveland Indians at the time, or Cleveland Guardians as we know them now, for a player to be named later. Okay, But since the strike happened, no transactions could be made after August 11th. So, the Twins officials and... The uh, Cleveland officials got together, got together, and this is where it gets really absurd. Absurd is instead of Cle- Cleveland just buying out his contract and giving him a cash amount, the Cleveland management team took the Twins management team out for dinner, <laughs> with Cleveland picking up the tab for the entire meal. And I really hope it was just more than just food and there was actually some drinks in there to make that bill a little sky high because, I mean, what are you going to do? You take, what, 15 guys at McDonald's and and you spend, what, 10 bucks? That's 150 bucks. So if you take them to McDonald's, was a, you just bought with Dave Winfield for $150? Jeez. So I really hope they went to, like, a steakhouse, got some drinks, had some laughs, you know. Did, did it upright to where the bill was at least, I don't know, 2500 bucks. Oh, that is the most absurd trade I have ever heard of. Now, let's get to the main topic. We're going to just get right into this today. No beating around the bush. No, no little fluff, nothing like that. Let's just get right into the 1994 Montreal Expos. A team at the time of the strike was one of the best, was the best team in baseball. They had a three-game lead over the Yankees for the for the um, lead in the major leagues, and they had a six-game lead over the Atlanta Braves in the NL East. This team had pitching, had some hitting, and they played some defense. They were on the trajectory to win it all, and then it all crashed on August 11th when the strike took place. At the time, Montreal is 74 and 40. 
Um, like I said, they they're they're six games ahead of the second place Braves, and you know the Braves that had a great run in the '90s and ran roughshod over the NL at this po- point. The surprising factor was Montreal had the second lowest payroll, which is even more disheartening for uh, the Montreal fans this time this this year as in 1994 as the last time that they made was made the playoffs was in 81 and that resulted when a work stoppage happened as well so Montreal's luck is not very good with them so who on the Expos made them dangerous well let's start with the manager Felipe Alou he started managing the Expos in 1992 37 games into the season taking over for the fired Tom Reynolds. At the time, Reynolds was 17 and 20 when he was fired, and then Alu took over, and they went 70 and 55 the rest of the season, and finished in second place, nine games back of the Pirates in the NL East at the time. Because in 1992, kids, uh, there was only two divisions: you had the East and the West, and you had two teams that should have been in the East Division that were in the West Division which would have been the Braves and the Cincinnati Reds. Following uh, following that season, he followed that up with a 93 season where they went 94-68-1, and, and they had a tied, and they finished three games back of the eventual NL champs, the Phillies, who then went on to lose to the Tor- Toronto Blue Jays due to uh, Mitch Williams giving up a home run to Joe Carter. So we could have had a all-Canada World Series, too. World Series that year. Then in 1994, Alou and the Expos struggled out of the gate. In April, they went four and nine over their first in their first 13 games. Let's also mention at this time in 1994, it was the first season where you actually had four teams in the playoffs from each league, as they expanded it to three divisions. So 94 was essentially supposed to be the first first year that we get the wild card teams. So you so they come out of the gate their first 13 games they go 4 and 9 which resulted in them in being eight and a half games out of first place. But then on April 19th and through April 30th they went 9 and 1 and ended up being two games back at the end of the year. In the month of May they go 15 and 12 finishing uh, the month still three and a half games back. June, they end up going 19 and 8, but they only gained two games, so they're still one and a half games back. And while the Expos are building momentum, going into July, the Atlanta Braves are starting to slow down. Atlanta started out April 15 and 8, and that was. And th- that was with them going 14-1 and one in their first 15 games. 14-1, and one, their first 15 games. They went 1-7 and seven to end April. May they went 16-10, and 10, which isn't bad. June they went 17-10, and 10, still not bad, still good, and still in first place by one and a half games. But then they go 14-14. and 14. 14 wins, 14 losses in July. And they started July by going 4-6 and six up into the All-Star break. But then, out of the All-Star breaks, well, and meanwhile, at the same time, the Expos, in that first couple weeks of July, 
they went seven and three, and they end up being and was one game up of on the division going into the All Star game. Out of the All Star game, the Expos slip a little bit. They lose a four game series at home against the Giants and fall to two games behind. After that four game losing streak, the Expos go on to win eleven of their next twelve games, and that include beating Atlanta in Atlanta two games to one in a three game series. Over that same period, Atlanta wins four of five out of the All Star break, but then went six and eight to finish the month. And at the end of the July, the Expos have a three and a half game lead on the Braves. Atlanta in the month of August went six and four. Meanwhile, the Expos were nine and two from August 1st to August 11th. So the final standings for the NL East was the Expos at 74 and 40. The Braves were 68 and 46. The Mets were 55 and 58 and 18 and a half games back. The Phillies, who just came off a World Series appearance, were 54 and 61 and 20 and a half games back. The Marlins at the time was 51 and 64, and there were 23 games back. Montreal also had an eight-game lead over Cincinnati for the best record in the NL. Then it had a three-and-a-half game lead over the Yankees, as I said, for the best record in baseball. Alou and the and the Expos were so good that year, it looked like the road to the World Series championship would go through Montreal. And that Montreal would also be able to host four of the seven games as well, because back then, kids, it wasn't who won the All-Star game that decided who got to host the World Series. It was the best record that got to choose, that was able to uh, chose who hosted the World Series games. Now, who were the Expos that Alou was managing? With the success, with the success that they had, you would have thought that they had multiple starting All Stars that started, right? No, it's not the case. The Expos had zero All Star starters, but they did end up having five All Stars, four position players, and one pitcher. The Expos' starting lineup was Marquise Grissom in center, Moises Salou in left, had Larry Walker in in right. Around the infield, you had Cliff Floyd at first, Mike Lansing at second, Will Cordero at short, and Sean Berry at third. And at catcher, we had Darren Fletcher. Not a superstar lineup for the 90s. A va- just a good lineup of guys that could hit the ball when needed, keep the runners moving, and score runs. Moises Alou led the team with a 3.39 batting average, a 3.30, a 3.97 on base percentage, and a 5.92 slugging percentage. Larry Walker was the close second with a 3.22, 3.94, and 5.87 slash line. And then you had Will Cordero at short, who hit 2.94, 3.63, and 4.89. Marquise Grissom sold 36 bases and 42 attempts. In the NL, they ranked third in runs scored, hits, on base percentage. They also ranked second in doubles and batting average, and they ranked first in stolen bases and sack flies. But they only ranked ninth in home runs. 
They did not have a number one offense. But you know what they did have? And this is the key. Because two things, kids. Defense and basketball wins you a championship. And pitching and baseball wins you a championship. And they had the number one pitching staff in terms of ERA with a 3.56. Shutouts, where they had two. Saves, 46. They had a seven strikeouts per nine innings. And they had a 2.80 strikeout to wash ratio. They also they had a team average whip of 1.214. They gave up 8.4 hits per nine. But they only allowed .9 home runs per nine. So they did not really give up a whole lot of pitcher. A lot of home runs. They had 32 wild pitches on the year. And the only staff that really outshined them in certain points was the Atlanta Braves. And the Braves had Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, Avery, and Kurt Mer- Kent Merker. Meanwhile, the Expos were rolling out. Ken Hill, whose best three years was with the Expos from 92 to 94. 94 wasn't even the best year of that either. 92 was when he went 16-9 with a 2.68 ERA. You had 22-year-old Pedro Martinez, who definitely wasn't Pedro yet. But he showed glimpses of it. He was 11-5 with a 3.42 ERA, and he was named the opening day starting starter that year. Your third starter was Jeff Facero, 31 years old and the oldest guy in the starting rotation the and the entire pitching staff. And he was also the second oldest player on the team, only behind Randy Mulligan, who played in 47 games at first base and pinch hit for the Expos. It's not like they had a lot of experience in, in the league either. But this team, they did have consistency. As they had 15 of the players on this roster were on the 93 team, and 10 of them were from the 92 roster that ILU took over. What really made this team special was they were young, cocky, and confident, just like their manager. And I believe Montreal would have won the World Series that year early in because of this confidence that they had. And I also believe they would have had to play the Yankees as well, which would have been a young Derek Jeter and a chance to win a ring for Donnie Mattingly. Maybe the Yankees win... And Donnie gets his ring, and then Don, Donnie retires, and then gets elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Or, the Expos win or lose a World Series, but instead of having a fire sale in 95 like the Expos did, they run it back and add a, as a hot young, and are the hot young team. Sign a couple free agents to put them over the top, and make another World Series again. And they wouldn't have, and then they wouldn't have have, they would have probably kept Walker and Martinez in 97. And baseball stays in Montreal. Felipe Alou is probably one of the greatest managers of all time and one of the most underrated managers at that for what he did with the Montreal Expos. The Expos then could become a dynasty of sorts if that 94 season doesn't end in a strike, right? And at the same time that you have the Expos going winning the NL and instead of the Braves doing it, 
You have them facing the Yankees in the World Series from, let's say, 94 to 2001. I mean, a guy can dream, right? Have the Expos Yankees every single year. And I, all I know for sure is that Expos team could have saved baseball in Montreal, no matter what happened. But instead, we had the strike, which I get why it did. And at some point, we'll go into detail in a future episode about that. So everybody can understand why the players decided to strike in 1994. The Expos ended up trading everyone away or let them go once contracts were up. And the Expos slowly become irrelevant. And then they requested to have a new stadium, which obviously Montreal wasn't doing that. And then and baseball just got hard in Montreal. So they were bought by the league at one point, and then they were the traveling gypsies, having home games in Montreal and in San Juan, Puerto Rico, for the 22 and 24 seasons before before being moved to Washington, D.C. for the 2005. Ted Lerner took over ownership in 2006, and least we forget, MLB voted in 2001 to contract the league by two teams. The two teams, you ask, were the Minnesota Twins and the Montreal Expos. You want to know why they wanted to contract the teams? Because they couldn't get government-funded stadiums in the places that they wanted. They didn't want the Twins playing in the Metrodome anymore. They wanted an open-air stadium that they could play in. They didn't want Montreal playing an Olympic stadium anymore. And they wanted a downtown facility. And neither city would vote to help billionaires and a multi-billion dollar organization like Major League Baseball pay for a stadium. Same thing going on in Oakland right now. So, but instead of contracting it by two, in 2002, the Metropolitan Sports Facilities that, that ran and operated the Metrodome won an injunction for the Twins to play there in 2002 which forced Major League Baseball to keep the Twins and Expos. And then the the they signed a new CBA in 2002, which wouldn't let any contraction happen until 2006 when it ran out. But by then, the Twins had a, had a new stadium in Target Field, and the Expos, or the Twins had a new stadium lined up, and the Expos were in D.C., So how did Major League Baseball come to own the Expos? Well, they bought the team from Jeffrey Loria, you know, the guy that owns the Marlins now. And why did they do that? Well, that's because John W.H. Henry headed up a partnership to buy the Red Sox. And at the time, the only problem with that was Henry owned the Marlins. So Henry sold the Marlins to Loria. Loria sold the Marlins to Major League Baseball. And then Major League Baseball eventually sold the ba- the team to Ted Lerner after they moved to D.C. So talk about a good old boys club of how it happens. So you have the 94 Expos, right? You have a group of young players that kind of reminds you of the Expos of the 80s when you had Tim Raines and Andre Dawson and Gary Carter all playing on that team. And then you have Larry Walker, 
you know, Marquise Grissom, who ended up winning a World Series ring with the Braves. Larry Walker ended up being a Hall of Famer by going to Colorado. Pedro Martinez ended up being Pedro with Boston. And that team of young players was just really dominant. You had Felipe Alou, who ended up managing up until like 2001. And then he ended up taking a couple years off before he finally went and managed the Giants after Dusty Baker. Moises Alou would go on to play for the Cubs and the Astros. And he would be infamous in the Bartman situation with the Cubs. And I don't. Th- and I think if Moises Alou doesn't make the reaction, everybody has seen it. And if you haven't, Google Steve Bartman. He reaches out just like 50 other fans to try to catch a foul ball in an NLCS game that the Cubs hadn't been to since like, well, since 89, right? Hadn't been to a World Series since 45 at that point. And everybody's reaching for it. Alou goes to jump for it. Obviously, he probably can't make the play, but his reaction says it all. And then Bartman gets stuff thrown at him and... That's probably another episode. That's an ESPN 30 for 30 right there. Because there's one on that as well. So. There you have it, folks. The 94 Expos team of what-ifs. And then the prevailing aftermath. Right? So, their whole reason baseball doesn't survive in Montreal, in my opinion, is because the strike happens. If they get a winning team, which they had winning teams up till then, and then in 95, they come out and throw a loser out there because they sold everything off. And by 97, everybody that was on that team was gone. And then they end up getting, they had Bartolo Colon played for the Expos, was in the Expos system at one time. Um, You had a few other youngsters that did in the early 2000s as well. And they just traded all their pieces away. It was like they didn't care. And obviously they didn't, because then they started averaging 7,000 fans a game. Well, I would like to thank BaseballReference.com for all the stats you compile onto your website. Like I said, still looking for that partnership, sponsorship, or whatever. Just give me a free monthly subscription for the year. It'll be all right. Wikipedia also helped as well. And as I've said before, you can't always rely on Wikipedia says. So always check a second source and that's why we always go to baseballreference.com okay I got a funny story about Wikipedia way back in the day and it deals with Bill Belichick I kid you not on Bill Belichick's uh, Wikipedia page at the time of his height in 2005 2006 it legit said his manhood was a monkey's manhood on his Wikipedia page. <laughs> and then it was automatically, obviously deleted right after that because, you know, they take, because people actually do try to set things straight as well. Um, as always, if you like this episode and you're a first time follower or first time listener, hit the follow button. Hit the bell and make sure to hit the download button. Even if you're not a first-time follower, make sure you hit the download button for me. Okay. Downloads is how I get is how things get tracked, as always. 
and that's what we need to do. And if you're looking for some merch of your favorite podcaster here, Mr. One Guy with a mic, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com and click on the link for the shop, and you can get t-shirts, some other cool stuff as well. So have a great day or night, you know, whatever you're listening to, and I will catch you on the next episode of One Guy with a Mic, Dingers and Dunks.